Are you satisfied with your understanding of sustainability? If not, like me, imagine a journey together, a pluralistic one, with innovators, startup, academia, NGO, all together looking for solution to the greatest challenge of our time. I'm Samuele Tini, and this is the Sustainability Journey. Welcome to another wonderful episode. Today, we are going to meet an innovative leader, a change maker who decided to come down from North America, going to Africa and trying to solve problem of nutrition and prepare sustainable proteins for people. Ow. I want to welcome today Shobita Sor, who is the CEO and founder of Legendary Foods Africa. Welcome to the show, Shobita. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to discuss with you today. Shibita, your story is amazing. You have top degrees, MBA from the top university in, in North America uh, and in Canada, uh, in a particular case, and especially the McGill University is very famous. How in Ghana and you, you started your journey towards sustainability? Yes. So, you know, I went to McGill University as an undergrad in psychology. And when I was there, I realized that I really wanted to have a positive impact on people and on the world. And this is really what drove me and what interested me about psychology. And very lucky for me, I had the opportunity to do some practical psychology experiences. And in that, I realized I did not thrive in the one-on-one -on -one setting. I wanted something that was more dynamic, something that was more in a group, something that was a bit more fast-paced. And so at the end of my degree, I said, okay, let me apply to law school. You know, I still feel like I could have a positive impact doing this. So I got into law school also at McGill. And once I got there, I actually had a very similar realization that this can be, not in all cases, but this can be an isolating career, a lot of solo work. And again, I wanted something dynamic. So in parallel, I also started to develop an interest in stakeholder rights, in shareholder rights in corporate governance and how do businesses respond to society's problems, sometimes even faster than the law responds. And so I had the opportunity to apply to the joint law and MBA program at McGill, which I took on. And that is really where I fell in love. I felt like business can be a very dynamic force for positive change in the world. And this is the story that I wanted to be a, a part of for sure. And while I was there, I was recruited to being part of uh, the Halt Prize team. The Halt Prize is a big crowdsourcing platform that puts out a challenge to students to come up with a business for positive social change. And the year my team and I participated from McGill, it was really around come up with a business that addresses food insecurity. And so my team and I came across this really fascinating research around edible insects, how they are foraged all around the world. They are delicious. They are nutritional powerhouses, um, but there really isn't a lot of farming and a lot of sustainable supply with respect to edible insects. So we found this to be a great opportunity we ended up winning the Halt Prize. And this really catapulted me into the world of edible insects. And we started off in Mexico, 
the United States as well. And we started a smallholder farmer group in Ghana where we looked at whether insects could be farmed on a household scale. And we had a lot of mixed results with this. And in that, I identified that the real opportunity here is around centralized production, especially right now, since we're at the nascency of the industry, we want to be running a lot of controlled scientific trials to understand how to produce this. So why don't we do centralized production of a desired edible insect? And so that led me to spin off from the original startup that I co-founded to found Legendary Foods, which really is on a mission to produce the most cost-effective, the most sustainable, the most nutritious and delicious form of animal protein in West and Central Africa using insects, uh, specifically the palm larva. That is how I ended up here. That's a long story. <laughs> it's really you and your passion. In the context there, you wanted to make an impact and you can see from your voice and from your passion, it really transpires. And that's why you are here because we like change maker and we like people that make a difference. And especially your problem is, and the solution you are providing is quite interesting. It's often overlooked and sometimes, especially in the, in the Western world, is looked upon like, oh my God, eating insects. But in the other side, we understand that it is part of the culture and as well is a very effective solution for noble protein, very effective, as you said, in your mission. Can you explain us maybe which is the problem we are trying to solve with Legendary Foods Africa? The problem that we're really trying to solve is one around a protein crisis. And so we have really identified that there are a lot of issues around protein, especially on the continent of Africa. We all know that, you know, the population increase is expected to be among the fastest on the African continent, especially in the next couple of decades. So we are expecting not only more people, but we are expecting that those people have more income and more money and that they are going to live in cities. And we have seen very clearly from the development stories in other parts of the world that as soon as people start to have more money, as soon as they rise out of poverty, one of the first things that they actually spend money on is meat. So that means that not only are we going to have more people, we're going to have more people demanding meat products, animal-based products. And it makes sense because animal-based products provide a lot of nutrients. Protein is very digestible. There's a lot of minerals and vitamins. It actually does contribute in many cases to a healthier population as well. So we feel that the demand for protein will certainly outweigh the supply. And if we look at the supply side, there are also issues. So the bulk of the protein is actually imported. So uh, a lot of canned fish, a lot of poultry coming from the US and Brazil. And this is really making up the bulk of the animal-based proteins that are available. So we are also at the same time solving the problem of protein sovereignty. 
having and really taking advantage of the value chains of the agriculture potential that exists here for us to provide a solution that is really sovereign. And I would say lastly, a lot of the conventional livestock production methods are very destructive to the planet. So, you know, we very well know that livestock is one of the biggest contributors to climate change. And as we'll talk about, edible insects can really be, you know, a, a nice uh, contrast uh, to that when it comes to their ecological impact. That is the problem we are solving. This is very interesting and very clear. As you say, I love the protein sovereignty. Because having lived in West Africa past 17 years, I can see the, the carbon footprint that is there with the imports of poultry from all over the world, of for the frozen chicken from Brazil or the States or, or others. So the real, the protein sovereignty and going towards what is the indigenous production and the way also people, let us say, let me say also decolonize the food chain. And the other one is what you just also mentioned. We all know that cows, pigs, uh, chicken in intensive livestock production, especially the models we have in North America and other areas of the world are really carbon intensive, land intensive, water intensive, and really we need change there. And insects can be a good source of protein. Can you explain me? Because I'm sure also the audience will be like, what is Jupiter farming? What are you doing? So, you know. What is what you mentioned? What is this African palm weevil? Can you explain us? Yes, of course. Yeah. Maybe I'll just take a step back to say the UNFAO has identified, I think, close to about 2,000 species of insects that are consumed by humans worldwide. And um, it's very specific to the population. So, for example, just because I eat crickets doesn't mean I eat grasshoppers, or just because I eat termites doesn't mean I eat larvae. Um, so it often is quite specific to the environment of the population. So the insect that we are choosing to focus on right now is the African palm larva, as you correctly mentioned. And what this insect is, it has been consumed traditionally for a very long time, but through the practice of foraging from the wild. So what do I mean by this? When the palm tree is at the end of its sort of life cycle, it is felled. And at that time, the log starts to ferment because it is essentially dead. And you see that the weevil infests the palm log and you get these beautiful larvae that come out of the log that is consumed. And, you know, just to give you an idea, the taste is very much like shrimp, but the texture is very much like sausage. So it's very meaty already. It's very much like the livestock that we already consume. So people will harvest these larvae and cook them and grill them and eat them in that way. But there have been a lot of problems with this because, first of all, there's more insecticides and pesticides being used in the palm plantations. So the supply has actually dwindled in the wild. And um, it's also not food safe because you're not sure, you know, has there been insecticides, pesticides, exactly where is it coming from? And it's highly seasonal. So what we have done is we have invested into the development of a novel rearing protocol. So that means that we farm 
the larva instead of having to forage them from the wild. And that results in a year round supply. It allows us to continue to do research to really bring down the unit economics to make it very accessible to the masses. It allows us to produce it, uh, for example, in urban centers. So it doesn't have to be something that is only in uh, rural places or in the villages. And to produce it, yes, like I said, all year round. So this is why we have worked with the, the African palm weevil, because there is already a demand for it where there is palm in West and Central Africa, even a little bit in East Africa. And it is one that is amenable to being farmed. Very interesting and and a crucial solution, talking about the scalability of some of the traditional way of insects consumption in Africa. I'm used to cricket, I even eaten crickets and termites. I will be curious to try the larvae because shrimp and sausage, there will be a yummy and meaty and meaty experience. And I want to understand better now the modern. Now you have changed from the traditional collection, which is also poses threat about you know pesticides and others with farming environment, which is also closer to the consumers. How the product is consumed? How do you go to the market? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that me and my team, you know, spend quite a lot of time on. So traditionally, when you see the palm larva, it is consumed as a substitute for meat or fish. For example, in Ghana, it is used in soups, in stews, or it is grilled like a kebab. This is a very popular way to eat it. What we do is we uh, farm it and we sell it either fresh or frozen. And in this case, the consumer is really using it, again, as a substitute for meat or fish in their diet. You know, cold stores are very popular in Ghana, and it's a very common way for people to be buying fish or uh, frozen chicken or guinea fowl, that sort of a thing. So it falls very much in line with the current consumer behaviors. We also, though, do produce some products that are more shelf stable. We also have a condiment where instead of fish powder being at the base, we use larva powder at the base of it. So this condiment is called shitol. It's very common uh, in, in Ghana and quite delicious. We also produce uh, biscuits or baked goods with the larva. So we take the larva, we make it into a paste, and it can act as a substitute for oil and butter in uh, baking. And these two products are actually very good to bring the recognition uh, and the reconnaissance of larva to the younger generation, a, a generation that has really grown up in the cities that maybe was not accustomed to this practice that used to happen more in the village, more in a farm setting, more in a rural setting. So it's been quite good for that. And right now where we are at our farm, we also offer some food service products. So we also will cook the products uh, for consumers. And why do we do this? We do this because 
when we went to market initially, we would often get reactions from our customers saying, oh my God, I haven't had this in years. I didn't have this since I was a young kid, or my wife doesn't know how to cook it. I also forget how to cook it. So we are doing some of the food service as well. But now as we are scaling up and we are growing, we are actually transitioning uh, from us doing the value addition. And instead we sell the product to restaurants, to hotels, to catering services. They cook it and serve it to the final consumer. And we also have some products in the pipeline. So a canned version, for example. So it can be the same as canned fish. Um, for example, sardines are very, very popular in the region. So something that is analogous to that, that has a complementary nutritional profile. So really, there are lots of opportunities for the palm larva to get into people's bellies. And we are launching an entire industry because there will be people now and there are entrepreneurs that we've really helped to buy the larva, they do value addition, and then sell it to the final consumer. Uh, so this is really exciting to also provide opportunities for other entrepreneurs within our ecosystem. That is incredible discussion, how you create, or better said, you recreate and innovate a traditional value chain, especially what's really struck me was the culinary training. We can, we can frame it like this. Because the younger generations, they've been exposed to what we call modernity. So the tarmac and the skyscraper and the booming, you know, in especially for emerging economy, and they forgot what are the indigenous, the traditional foods. I mean, my wife doesn't know to cook always. I've been eating in the village and then now it's really interesting. And I like the way how you create as well, you know, this uh, training, this work and, you know, this tasting sessions to get also the people to eat and get them accustomed. Let me ask you a question about how does it feel now in, in Ghana? I mean, if you can answer, of course, how is it in the pricing compared to the alternatives? And the second question linked to that is because price we know is one of the factors, but it's also the perceptions, which are the perception of the customers towards traditional foods, especially in the cities. Yeah, that's a great question. So when I look at our uh, customer avatar, our primary customer is usually middle-aged, is usually coming from a rural setting. So somebody who grew up in a rural setting and has now moved to the city. Somebody who takes a lot of pride in being uh, Ghanaian, somebody who takes a lot of pride in maintaining their traditions, and also, usually they are professionals, so academics, government workers, doctors, so on and so forth. This is really our prime, prime market. And so uh, outside of this market, yes, it does depend on the person's upbringing. So first of all, did they grow up really in the palm belt of the region? Because outside of the palm belt, there is not as much consumption. And that is where the condiment products, the baked good products really help us as a gateway to becoming more open and to becoming more uh, interested in what is this meat and so on and so forth. I think there is a general, very strong sentiment to want to protect and promote local products. So this definitely works very much in our favor. The other thing that also works in our favor is that 
Like I said, for example, if you have never tasted a cricket before and you taste a cricket, it does not taste like the meat that you are used to consuming, right? There will be antennas and legs and, and wings maybe uh, depending on the, on the maturity. Uh, so it's almost more like a sunflower seed or a nut or a snack. In our case, the larva is very similar in taste and texture to what people are already eating. So we do a lot of sampling, taste testing, so that people who have not tasted it before have the opportunity to taste it. And once they taste it, they like it because it's very similar to what they are eating already. And then in terms of pricing, it's very interesting because, you know, what, what I would say maybe to other food entrepreneurs as well is that oftentimes the customer is making an evaluation of price to volume, not price to weight or price to calorie or price necessarily to quality of nutrition, right? So people want to see with their eyes a lot of food even though maybe the calories are, are very high. So when we look at the comparison on price per weight or price per calorie, even at our current pricing, the palm larva performs very, very well. Um, so for example, if you compare it to domestic uh, chicken, it is actually cheaper. But the issue comes in with volume. Because 100% of the larva is edible, whereas maybe with the chicken, you have the carcass, you have feathers that add volume that is not necessarily edible. Um, this is sometimes where people perceive the product to be a little bit more premium. But like I said, you know, in parallel, as we scale up, we anticipate bringing the price down. What really drives my team and, and myself is we want to produce a meat that has the nutrition of meat, but is the price and the sustainability of plants. And so we really want to contribute to it being uh, very, very cost effective. So this is something that we are constantly investing in, is how do we produce this in a more cost effective manner? When you look at any livestock system, your primary contributors to cost are labor and feed. Um, so these are really the levers that we pull to bring the, to bring the cost down. Subita, you are an exceptional person. You have the passion. When people speak with passion, they make themselves very understandable. I have understood, and I'm sure also the audience now can engage. I'm really now curious also to try. I, I was eating crickets and termites. I mean, they didn't blow up my mind. I was like, okay, that's an antenna they are, you know. I prefer the cookies. And I remember when I was promoting cookies, I was baking at home and then going around with friends and promote the cookies, which they say, oh, they're exceptionally nice. And then I say, okay, it's, it's made of from cricket flour. And then, oh my, I'm really interested because you start instead with a point of advantage because being similar to me, it's really already in the taste, within the taste of people. And going towards that, I want to ask you, you have done the baking, you have done the condiment, you are doing the frozen, the canned one and others. Are you only focusing on Ghana on which is, I can see you are a very ambitious person. So where do you want to go? Our target market is really West and Central Africa. So the markets that I and my team are looking at next are Nigeria, 
Cameroon and DRC. These are the markets we have identified as being the most exciting for palm larvae, where there is really a strong demand for it, where there is consumption uh, from the wild right now, and people are quite eager to get this uh, into their hands. So for us, really West and Central Africa is our primary focus right now. I often you know, get asked, oh, are you also looking at exporting the product outside of the continent of Africa? You know, I think the diaspora is, is quite interesting and we get a lot of inquiries from the diaspora in the US and as well as in, as in Europe. And we're looking uh, for channels to be able to serve them uh, online. That is something that we're working on right now. Uh, and I think certainly with insects, you know, it's a very underutilized resource and it's very scalable, as you rightly pointed out. And so that also provides the potential in the future to look at protein powder from the larva, to look at oil extraction from the larva. There are some early studies that indicate that the oil can actually help with insulin sensitivity. So this can be quite interesting in terms of a nutraceutical. So these are certainly things we look at. And the other thing that is very common that you see in insect production systems is sale from the waste that the farm produces. So our insect farm, our larva farm also produces waste. And this waste has great applications both in livestock systems, so in pig breeding, as well uh, as in horticulture. We also do use our waste and sell it to other um, agriculture actors for them to also help to mitigate their costs as well. So this is also quite common with a lot of insect production systems. Very interesting, the circularity angle, because that is where you really can close the chain and as well, you know, enable transformation in other production, especially with pigs, as you mentioned, it's really interesting. I, I love the diaspora because that is also what came to my mind, you know, to go around and move to the world. And I will be delighted also to see you maybe going to a continental scale, maybe in Africa. Actually, I would love to also to see you in Kenya and in other countries because it will be also enable partnership, you know, in the spirit, not only in the end of hunger, food security, traditional SDG, but also in the partnership, because with your potential and products, you can go to address food insecurity, working with NGO, local government, and really empower. We're going towards the end. Clearly, you have shown us you have passion. You are uh, a sectional speaker, and I'm telling you from the, the deep of my heart, because you are really a really wonderful guest, you can explain properly, and really with, with the passion and the fire that takes you to make an impact in, the, in, in your field. As a woman leader, as an entrepreneur in Africa, can you tell us your experience and you know, the challenges and your ambitions as well? Yeah, I often say that entrepreneurship is a catalyst for personal uh, and spiritual growth. And I really believe this because as an entrepreneur, you are faced with a lot of challenges in terms of, you know, a lot of 
a self-doubt will arise. Am I the person for this? Do I know what I'm doing? Do I know enough of what I'm doing? Am I making the right level of impact? Am I managing myself well in a new culture that I did not grow up in? And so I think it is certainly a big challenge to start a business in a new environment, in a new culture. Having said that, I think one skill that this journey has forced me to really refine and really focus on is becoming a cultural chameleon, particularly as being a woman and as being a foreigner. There are times where I feel I am very, very much underestimated or I am very, very much brushed off as, you know, who are you, this crazy lady who is coming to farm insects. And sometimes I am also maybe looked at in a certain way, uh, maybe even overestimated. I am given certain credibilities that I feel I don't have or certain credentials I don't have. Um, And so I think for me, what really helps is being very intentional about how I want to show up in different situations. So sometimes I know I have to really keep my ego in check, really be modest, really be humble to get where I want to get. Sometimes I know that in a certain situation, I need to be more assertive. I need to be more confident. I need to be more demanding about uh, what it is that I want to be able to move things forward. Sometimes it requires one to be very, very charming and try to use charm in order to to move things uh, forward. So I think having a lot of ability to be adaptable in a new culture and a new context can really help because even within the culture, there are many micro situations that demand a different side of your personality to shine through, and also a lot of self-awareness. This is also very, very important, the self-awareness to recognize that I don't sometimes even know what I don't know. And sometimes I make, you know, incorrect assumptions about cultural aspects or about what might be important to my team and really building the skill to find out what people honestly think and to get clear feedback is something that took me a while to get because operating, for example, in the Ghanaian context, I really had to work extra hard for people to feel comfortable to give me feedback being a foreigner. So these uh, skills have really helped in terms of adaptability, self-awareness, and going out of my way to seek feedback. That's exceptional, Subita. I love the cultural chameleon. You are a person that puts in herself three continents. You know, you have the subcontinent, you have the North America, you have Africa, all together in you. So it's really fascinating how you shape and, and the practical lessons that every day, you know, especially working in different contexts, we need to work and, and really to, to put in practice. It. And I can see what shines from you is your passion and fire. That is what also drives the entrepreneur, the grit that takes you, because now you are telling us the, the good sides, the stories, but I'm sure you have also the many trials, the, the failures, entrepreneurship is, you know, sometimes when you do the interview, we just celebrate the successes, but they also, the, these successes, they are coming from many failures. And, and I'm sure, especially with insects, 
it's it's really a tedious problem and a lot of research. Usually we, we finish, we finalize the episode with a call for action. What's, and especially in this occasion, given being your passion, what do you want to say to our audience? Sure. I think one of my favorite quotes around sustainability is that we don't need people doing living a perfectly sustainable life. We need a lot of people practicing sustainability in an imperfect way. And I think once we release ourselves from the standard of being perfect at anything, including sustainability, we can really begin to foster real change. And I think that Every time that we make a decision to purchase something, every time we make a decision to eat something, every time we make a decision to engage with, with the world, we have multiple options in terms of how we show up. And just starting to shift our perspective to becoming aware of our choices and the impact of our choices on the greater world when it comes to sustainability and to the environment uh, will really help the world to move in the right direction. And from where I am, you know, I have a lot of hope uh, still for a sustainable world. And I think we all uh, have that power within us, no matter how uh, quote unquote small or how big our lives are. We, we all have a lot of power uh, to shift the course of the sustainable world. Thank you, Shobita. I think it's a perfect way to end our episode because if everybody does even in the imperfect way, we will add up towards solving our decade of action. Also inviting you to see collaboration and work because I can see a lot of potential in your work and what you are doing. So thank you so much, Shubita, for being having been a guest to our podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was such a lovely conversation. Are you satisfied after this wonderful episode? In the next one, we'll talk about innovation.